The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. <laughs> don't tend to use uh, recording uh, amplification, so I'm never quite sure how far it's going and if it's too loud or too soft, uh, just raise your hand. Uh, so um, it is really lovely to be back here. It's been a while since I've been here, uh, and I always like coming back to IMC and uh, was very pleased. Uh, Gil actually asked me to do a talk at the end of the year, and unfortunately none of the dates worked, so uh, this was the first date that we could agree upon. So Happy New Year, and what a year 2016 was. Uh, for me personally, it was a very difficult year. Uh, my mother had a major stroke last January that left her paralyzed on her left side and is basically dying by degrees at this point. Uh, she wants to go, and I want her to go, uh, but you know, we don't necessarily get a say in these matters. And then in May, a very dear friend of mine uh, died of melanoma after doing a lot of treatment for a couple of years and everything she could and finally uh, decided there was nothing more to do. And then five days later, my Zen teacher, Blanche Hartman, died. Uh, so, and then there was the whole election thing. I mean... <laughs> So for me personally, it was a huge year. And then for the country, it was an even huger year. And here we are uh, two days after the inauguration, kind of catching our breath and thinking, what's next? What are, what are we doing here? So it has been my, uh, my New Year's wish for everyone that I've been writing to that 2017 be a fundamentally better year. <laughs> But in September, I went to the memorial service for my friend Sue. And I had been sort of her, I don't know, kind of hospice dying coach for two years. And because she lived in Nevada City, she used to be my next door neighbor, but she had moved to Nevada City that mostly consisted of emails and phone calls, and I wrote her uh, a letter every week. And sometimes it was just a card with one word on it, and I just, as a practice, because, you know, when someone is dying, there's really not a lot you can do for them. Each of us has to do that part for ourselves, but we can show our support. And so that was what I did. I just sent her a card every single week for two and a half years. So in September, I uh, was invited to the memorial up in Nevada City. And as my husband and I were driving up there, I thought, you know, I knew there was going to be a time for people to say something, and I just couldn't think of anything that, to say that would be appropriate. And then I happened to open an email from a friend of mine. And you know, sometimes when people send emails, they have a standard thing that's at the bottom, that's some quote that they, you know, just, it's just part of their email address. And at the bottom of hers, it said, Wisdom is knowing 
what to do next. Skill is knowing how to do it. And virtue is doing it. I was like, whoa, this is Sue in a nutshell in these last two and a half years. She was not a meditation student. She was actually, she had been a teacher at Woodside High School in the English department. Her youngest daughter and I, though, had hit it off, and she had come and practiced meditation and tea ceremony with me. So Sue and I sort of came to our friendship from the side. But when all of this happened, I was the first person she called. (laughs) And, And I said, do you want to talk about it? Yes, I do. And the very first thing, she just looked me, when when we got together, she just looked me in the eyes and she said, this is it, isn't it? I said, yeah, I think it is. And what do you want to do? And we came up with a plan of how to go forward. And part of that plan, you know, there was some part of her just thought, just going to let the melanoma take its course. I'm not going to do anything. And I said, you know what, that is absolutely your choice. But let me just put one thing out there. You do have your two girls, your children, and your husband. And so one thing to think about is what you're leaving them with. And I personally would probably want to try something, to do something, just so that later they're not thinking to themselves, Oh, if only mom had done or this or that. You know, you might want to think about doing some of the treatment. And then at some point when you're done, you're done. But at least then you can say, I did this. And they can know that you did try. And so that is in fact what she decided to do. And some of the treatment was awful. And there was, at one point she went back to Bethesda to the NIH and was put in a little tiny room for a month because they took all her white blood cells out and then put them all, new ones, all back in. So you have to be in this complete bubble of a room. And when she came back, she said, I feel like I've just been through a war. So she did what she could do. Anyway, that is what I ended up saying at her memorial. (laughs) Of course, I wasn't able to say it as easily as I'm able to say it now. But she did develop a great deal of wisdom. And she had the skill already to do it. But the real thing that struck me about this quote was the word virtue. Virtue is actually doing it. Virtue is a very old-fashioned word. It's right up there with, uh, you know, grace and chastity. (laughs) Kind of like, ack, virtue. Hmm. Um, Wisdom we're much more comfortable with. We all want to be wise. (laughs) The Buddha was very wise. You know, so wisdom is the faculty of making uh, the best use of knowledge, experience, and understanding. Okay, you can't just read it in books. You have to actually experience it too. And then you have to allow yourself uh, to understand it, which often means sitting in meditation and letting it trickle down. 
skill, I'm sure you're also very familiar with, skillful means. You know, this is another part of, a big part of Buddhist practice. And that is the ability to take our understanding and manifest it in our daily life in ways that create harmony and usefulness for everyone around us and ourselves. But virtue, what is virtue? This is, according to the dictionary, I love this, general moral goodness. Very old-fashioned character quality goodness, morality. Oh my goodness, that's another one. Everybody kind of goes, oh my God, morality. Oh no, now she's going to go into a rant about that. No. (laughs) Morality is the third stool of Buddhist practice, Shila, you know. This is doing the right thing. It's pretty straightforward. And there, for most of us, there is this little moral compass that knows the right thing to do. We don't always do it, but we kind of know it. It's uprightness and rectitude. Oh, there's another one for you. (laughs) But what was interesting to me is that later on, when I talked to my friend's husband, who I'm also close to, he said, you know, I'm amazed that you said that because virtue is one of my favorite words. He was the head of the English department at Woodside High. (laughs) He understood words and he understood virtue. There are not very many people that I can say are truly virtuous, but it is a high compliment. It is not an old fashioned thing at all. So as I say, you know, the three legs of Buddhist practice are wisdom, prajna, that's right view and right effort. And then meditation, which I'm preaching to the choir here, mindfulness practice, self-reflection, going towards your difficulty rather than away. And then virtue, Morality, that's shila. And that includes right speech, right action, right livelihood. Those are all parts of virtue. So in fact, you see, it might, it might be an old-fashioned word, but you're practicing it all the time. Of course, those three legs are interconnected and interdependent. And if you have any stools at home, you know that a three-legged stool is much more stable than a four-legged one. Because with the three, even if one's a little off, it just settles a little bit. Whereas if one leg is off, have you ever gone to a restaurant where you cannot get the table to settle down? Makes you crazy. You start sticking things underneath. And this is because uh, either it's one of a one-legged, <laughs> right? Or it's four, and you can't get it to settle. But a three-legged stool very stable. A three-legged practice is very stable. So if they're all interconnected and interdependent though, where do we start? 
How do, how do we practice with that? It's a little bit <coughs> like that riddle. You know this, of the wolf and the chicken and the grain getting across the river. If you don't know it, I'll tell you. You have a chicken, a wolf, and a bag of grain. How do you get them all across the river unharmed? If the chicken's going to eat the grain, the wolf will eat the chicken, but the wolf won't eat the grain. Okay. You got to think this through very carefully. You take the chicken across. Then you take the bag of grain. Then you have to take the chicken back the other way. Then you take the wolf across because he doesn't eat the grain. Then you go back and you get the chicken. <laughs> okay. You have to do things in a way that makes sense. You have to think things through. You cannot just rush out to do something. This was the thing that made me a little crazy after the election, I will tell you. It is not that everyone I knew was not undone by this. They were. But the difference between my friends who did practice of some kind and those who didn't was that the ones who didn't immediately were jumping around, we've got to do something. We have to go here, we have to go there, we have to... And it's like, no, the first thing you have to do is sit down and be quiet for a while and allow this, allow this anxiety that is pervading you to settle a little bit. Because let's face it, if you rush out there with a mind that is all muddy, do you think actually that you're going to be able to do any good work? No, you're going to do muddy work. So we sit to let that mud settle a little bit first. And then we can step forward into the clear water. So it's the same thing here with virtue, meditation, and wisdom as it is with the riddle of the wolf, the chicken, and the grain. There's a wonderful meditation teacher, Ajahn Chah, and he said, to uphold virtue, you have to be wise. Usually we advise people to first develop ethical standards by keeping the five precepts so that their virtue will become solid. However, the perfection of virtue takes a lot of wisdom. <laughs> so we have to consider our speech and action and analyze their consequences. This is all the work of wisdom. Therefore, we have to rely on wisdom in order to cultivate virtue. Wisdom purifies our actions and speech. Once we become familiar with ethical and unethical behavior, we see the place to practice. We abandon what's wrong and cultivate what's right. This is virtue. As we do this, the heart becomes increasingly firm and steadfast. A steadfast and unwavering heart is free of apprehension, remorse, and confusion concerning actions and speech. This is samadhi, meditation. As wisdom increases in strength and intrepidity, samadhi evolves to becoming increasingly firm. The more unshakable samadhi is, the more unshakable and all-encompassing virtue becomes. As virtue is perfected, it nurtures samadhi, and the additional strengthening of samadhi 
leads to a maturing of wisdom. In other words, it all has to happen at once. As you are sitting, you are developing stability. As you develop stability, your wisdom has a chance to arise. We have it already. Everything you need, you have. That's, that is the incredible thing. But you have to look for it. It's in there, but you have, to, you have to look for it. You have to cultivate it. So we sit in meditation so that samadhi allows wisdom to arise, allows our natural understanding of virtue to arise. Because as I tell my kids at school, I can't tell you what the rule is, right? In every situation, the rule is slightly different because circumstances are different. If we just come up with a series of rules, not to do this, not to do this, not to do this, well, it's, it's kind of like in the early days of the Buddha, right? Originally, there might have been five precepts, and then there were ten, and the next thing you know, there were a hundred, because... Should you drink milk before 10 o'clock or not? Oh, we have to create a rule about that. When, in fact, we use our wisdom, our common sense, and bring it to this situation and apply it. Because what might be right today is not right tomorrow. So there's this great story of uh, Suzuki Roshi when he was a young, very young person. And he was uh, uh, a disciple He was probably in his early teens, maybe even younger. He was a disciple in a temple with a very strict teacher. And he was in Japan, and uh, they would have guests, and the guest would come and have tea with his master. So one day he uh, was supposed to serve the tea, and he opened up the shoji screen, and he took the tea in, and later his master scolded him for opening up the shoji screen on that side. So the next time they had the guest he very carefully opened the other side. And later his master came and scolded him for that. (laughs) It turned out that you weren't supposed to open the shoji screen on whichever side the guest was, because then it was allowing this, this guest to be exposed to the elements. And then in the first instance, the guest had been on this side where he opened it, but in the second instance, the guest was on the other side. So there was no rule that he could figure out until later. Oh, oh, I see. It depends on where the guest is sitting. Oh. So insight, this thing that we're practicing, proceeds from peace and tranquility of mind. And this is why we have longer retreats. Because when we just come for an hour or even two, our lives are so busy, so full, that it's hard for us to settle down in a short period. We can do it a little, but go on longer retreats. And that allows the mind to settle in a very natural way. There's, I don't know for you, at least for me, uh, when I know I only have an hour, there's some part of me that's trying to settle down, right? Whereas when I go to a long retreat, it's like, oh, great, I have three days. I'm, I'm going to get there. I'm just going to relax. And sure enough, you do. Because the anxiety of trying to settle down goes away. So the Buddha taught, though, that this process 
matures at its own rate. The swiftness of it, the slowness of it is really out of our control. We just sit. We don't worry about what's going to happen. We don't worry about getting something from it. Because as soon as we do that, anxiety arises. Am I doing it right? How am I doing it compared to that person over there? Oh, everyone's going to know I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) And so this quickly or slowly depends on so many things. Innate ability to relax. There's a lot of people who are very, you know, strung up in such a way that, that their bodies just have a lot of energy, right? And there are other people that are more lethargic, so in some sense it's easier for them in the beginning. But it also has to do with what else you do in your life, the way you've been raised, there's all kinds of causes and conditions. So knowing this, let go of any goal-oriented behavior. It's going to happen however it happens for you. Some of you have been practicing for 30, 40, maybe 50 years. And others of you may be relatively new to practice. To those of you who have been around for a long time, I don't need to even say any of this because you've already experienced it. But for those of you who are newer, I'll just offer the example for myself of when I first arrived at Zen practice, there's all this strange stuff. They say one thing, but they really mean another. And koans and what? And after, you know, six or eight months, and maybe even a year, I finally said, you know what? I am clearly too stupid to understand any of this. So I'm just going to give up. Because, not give up practice, I'm just going to give up trying to understand Because I remembered, why did I come in the first place? Did I come to understand koans? Did I come to have a great enlightenment experience? No. I came because I felt that something was missing in my life. I had everything I had been told I would want. You know, I had a wonderful job, a great husband, nice house great education. I had done everything right. (laughs) And then it was, there I was at, what, 25, thinking to myself, is this it? Is this what I've spent the last, you know, 15 years basically going towards? this, This is it. I've already done it. And I thought, no, there's, there's got to be more than this. And it reminded me of things that happened in my very early childhood. Things that I could not explain then that I still can't explain now. Because little children understand things that we forget. They see the world. It is one of the reasons I love being a teacher. I love being around the really little guys as their sponge is just taking everything in. The beauty of the world, every small detail, the learning how to hold your own cup. <laughs> and it seems crazy. But I have been brought back to that this year with my mother. Because unfortunately it was her left side that was paralyzed, but she's right-handed, but she has terrible arthritis. 
And so she had stopped using her right hand for a lot of things because her left hand worked better. So now my mother uses one of those cups with the straw that's built in because she can't actually do this anymore. She can't get herself out of bed. She can't go to the bathroom herself. I mean, this is a woman who my father probably never saw without her clothes on, except somewhere under the sheets. She was a very private person. And now she has men and women changing her diaper. And I think about this all the time. She goes along. It doesn't make her really happy, but as she says, you know, what choice do I have? And I think, what a great attitude. Because she could be in a state of real anger all the time or denial, right? And she's not. She's trying to make the best of her situation. But what it reminds me of is we forget. We forget every day that we were able to wake up. We were able to go take a shower. We were able to fix ourselves something to eat. We were able to walk and get to our cars and come here. And we were able to sit and we are able to hear and see. And all of these things, we never appreciate them until we don't have them anymore. The day will come, for you younger ones, when some of the simple things that you used to do without even thinking about it not going to be so easy. For years I have been moving my own wood pile, stacking two to three cords a year. I like to stack wood. It's a very meditative activity. Yesterday I moved the wood from the wood pile to my back door where I have a crib. And I ended up not filling the crib all the way because I could feel that my lower back was beginning to bother me and I didn't want to be in pain today. But even five years ago, I wouldn't have even noticed filling the entire crib and more. So these are the small things. The body is going to betray you. Things are going to happen. They happen to everyone. This last year was big for me, but the fact is every hospital is filled with people who are sick or dying. You just don't happen to know them. This is happening around you all the time. And here you are with your beautiful, healthy bodies. Some of you less healthy than others, perhaps. But you're here. It's a gift. So we don't worry about why we're here. We're, we're here because it is our natural thing. It is who we are. The natural mind is the meditative mind. It is the mind at rest. You know, Dogen says it the best from my point of view. He says the, the zazen, the meditation that I speak of, is actually not meditation practice. It is the Dharma gate of joyful ease. I always love that phrase, joyful ease. 
to be at ease in our mind and our body, this is a gift. So many times we're filled with angst and anxiety and stress and anger and despair and and this last year has not been easy on a lot of people. A lot of uncertainty. We hate uncertainty. But I will tell you, the most important thing you can practice is the state of not knowing. There's a very famous koan, actually. And it goes like this. Daizhang asked Fayan, where are you going? And Fayan said, around on pilgrimage. And Daizhang said, what is the purpose of pilgrimage? And Fayan said, I don't know. And then Daizhang said, not knowing is most intimate. We have been taught from a very early age that knowledge is power. That what you want is to know a lot. And believe me, as a teacher, I am not dissing knowledge. But I will say as a Zen teacher, being able to embrace not knowing is actually a very helpful skill. Because knowing, you can only know so many things. And as you get older, you can know less and less. First of all, your memory just doesn't hold it anymore. And you forget things that you used to know, and it's really distressing. But most of the important stuff that happens in our life is about not knowing. I mean, the first time you fell in love, did you know anything about it? No. It just happened, and boy, it was wondrous. And every time you turned around, it was even more wondrous because you didn't know what to expect. You didn't know what love was, that kind of love. You knew about loving your mom and your dad and your siblings, but you didn't know about falling in love with somebody else. It was wonderful. It was exciting. It was new. There's a lot of things that we don't know about that that is true of. The problem is that we think of not knowing as an opportunity to get really stressed out. Oh my goodness, I don't know how to do that. So I noticed it in myself today when I sat down and this bell was in front of me. And I said, oh no, am I supposed to ring the bell at some point? And when? And oh dear, I don't have a timepiece with me. And, you know, there was this anxiety arising and then all of a sudden I saw the clock at the back of the room and I went, oh, phew, I do remember the lecture is supposed to be at 10 (laughs) o'clock. So surreptitiously at one point I finally glanced over and my dear friend over there held up the big mallet. I was like, thank goodness she's doing it. But the not knowing, even in that small moment, there was like this (coughs) in me of, oh no, I'm supposed to know this and I don't. The best example I ever had of the ability to exist in not knowing happened many years ago when I went to Tassajara. I was there for a practice period and we had all these guest teachers for the first two weeks. It was a very unusual practice period in that way. Usually you don't have that. But I think we had like 15 guest teachers come in for the two weeks all to talk about one topic each one. 
So one of them was uh, this man, Okamura Sensei, who teaches in the um, middle of the country now. And very uh, large Japanese man, a lot of presence, and very quiet, soft-spoken. But he is a scholar of uh, Buddhism and has written you know, many incredible books uh, on various things. But it came time, all the teachers were invited to lead one of the services. And even I, even though I'm descended from that lineage, don't know how to do all their services. I mean, it's like high church. It's labyrinthine sometimes. Anyway, it, we were starting to do the service. And when you're the person leading the service, you go up and you offer incense at different times and you bow and then you go back to your seat and there's chanting and so on. Well, <laughs> he went up to the altar for the very first thing. And uh, the, the person, his assistant, was there to give him a stick of incense. And so he took the stick of incense and he put it in. And uh, then he stood there. Now, he was supposed to go back around to his cushion and get ready for the bowing, but he just continued to stand there. And the amazing thing, immediately there's this thought that came to my mind. He doesn't know what he's supposed to do. But I saw absolutely no indication that he was upset by this, worried about it, distressed in any way, he just continued to stand there until his assistant realized he didn't know what he was supposed to do and went back up and bowed to him and motioned for him to follow, which he did with incredible grace. And all I could think of was, wow, I want that. I want to be able to exist in the middle of not knowing. 60 people are watching me, some of them real high mucky mucks, and not to be concerned about it at all. Think about the last time you were worried about not knowing something. I mean, probably you got into a little bit of a state. And what he showed me in that moment was, no, it's about being curious. It's about being virtuous. It's about being right here and allowing life to happen. Suzuki Roshi once said, you know, you don't do meditation. Meditation does you. I've thought about that for years and I finally get it. We think that when we come and sit down that we are doing it. No, we don't have anything to do with it. You come and sit down in order for this thing called meditation to arise in you. And it does it effortlessly. You might not feel it as effortless, and that's probably because you are trying to insert yourself into it, right? But it itself is just arising of its own accord if we give it a chance. So when I finally said to myself, I am too stupid to understand all this stuff, I'm just giving up and going back to sitting, oh, it was a miraculous difference because the giving up was just getting myself out of the way 
and all my own expectations and goals. And There is no goal here. There is nothing you are trying to get to. You already have it all. You are already wise. And you are already skillful. And whether you like it or not, (laughs) you are already virtuous people. Or you wouldn't be here. Virtuous people are the ones who already understand right speech, right action, right livelihood. I'm not saying you do it all the time, because I don't do it all the time. But we know what it is. And we come here to settle ourselves, to allow the stress and the anxiety to begin to shed, to empty out (laughs) our teacup of whatever is in it, so that something new, something curious, something, wow, that's interesting, what's that? I was having this conversation with my own students yesterday, and I was saying, isn't it wonderful? Generally what happens when when some difficulty comes along, we, we respond in a number of ways. Either we go into denial, no, this is not happening, or we just ignore it altogether, I don't want it to happen. Or we get angry about it happening. Or we distract ourselves, you know, I am really upset about this, I'm going to go watch my favorite TV program. We do any number of things rather than just allowing ourselves to be in the middle of our difficulty. To suffer when we are suffering. Or as an old Zen master said, when it's hot, be hot Buddha. And when it's cold, be cold, Buddha. Instead of wishing for it to be warmer or cooler or whatever it is we want. When we actually exist in this, in this present moment, and allow ourselves to be in our difficulty, what we find is that it changes moment by moment. It's never exactly the same. We have the impression that it's one long continuous upset. But it's not. It's up and down and up and down. And rather than go, oh, this is terrible, or why do things always happen to me? Could we instead say, wow, this is really interesting. I wonder what's going to happen next. That is curiosity. Curiosity, it turns out, is a very important characteristic for Buddhist students. To be curious about your life. To be curious about what's happening here. To be curious about what's happening there. That when you're in difficulty with another person, to be curious about why is this happening? What is going on for the other person? That's called empathy. Curiosity about other people is called empathy. Curiosity about the self is called compassion. Hmm. Instead of saying, oh my goodness, there, I've done it again, I'm a terrible person, why can I never learn? It's like, isn't that 
interesting that I did that again. Huh. Why? Why? This is... Curiosity, I will tell you, they are now discovering... (laughs) I've known this for years, but of course, scientific studies have found that by eight years old, curiosity has been beaten out of most children. We want them to have facts, we want them to have knowledge, but we do not care whether they are curious about their world. And you know what happens when a child doesn't have any more curiosity? They get tremendously bored. And when they get bored, they don't learn very well. What we're trying to do with them and with ourselves is learn how to learn, to be curious about our life, to be grateful for our life, to realize right now pretty much everyone in this room has got ten fingers and perhaps ten toes, eyesight despite glasses and contacts and whatever else you've got, hearing even with hearing aids, to be able to be curious about our life, to look at it always as, huh, isn't that interesting? One of my dear friends, I may have spoken about her in the past, who had a stroke five years ago, massive stroke, who today, unless I told you, you probably wouldn't know that she'd had one. There's still some difficulty, but you wouldn't know it. Her favorite phrase, (laughs) I noticed it yesterday because she did it again. She says, and isn't it interesting? (laughs) And I love that. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that we're the group that ended up here today? Why is that? Isn't it interesting that we decided to wear whatever we're wearing today or we decided to come out even though there's going to be, you know, lots of rain later on? Isn't life incredibly interesting? Isn't it interesting that we have the president that we have now instead of the... (laughs) I mean, really, isn't that pretty interesting, right? And isn't it interesting that we had the other kind of president before? It's all interesting. It's not good and it's not bad necessarily because there is always something that we're going to learn from it. A lot of people were pretty surprised about this election. But boy, was it a wake-up call Whoa, how'd that happen? Hmm, isn't that interesting? Yes, it is interesting. It's interesting because there were enough people that were just completely in despair about everything. They just wanted something different. They didn't care what it was. Isn't that interesting? Rather than going to the immediate place of good or bad, dualistic thinking... We have to bring our wisdom and our skillful means and our virtue to our life. Our practice requires three things. The first is determination, effort, and courage. Those have to go together. Effort and courage. We have to be honest with ourselves. We have to do a lot of self-reflection. And we have to have a willingness to trust in the teachings of the Buddha that have to do with ending suffering. 
he said, there's only one thing I teach. I teach the end of suffering. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Determination is going to allow us to work hard. Because everyone in this room, this is why I say you've already got what you need. You already have an innate, healthy desire to wake up. You know, my biography is pretty much the same, but a very big thing changed. I do still teach at the Peninsula School, but I'm no longer the librarian, which I was for 27 years. I have been, quote, promoted. We'll see. (laughs) I am in a position that's more or less the assistant director of the school. But really what my job is every single day helping my staff do whatever they need. Being with the kids in whatever way they need. That's my job. And it is really supposedly an 80% job and it is actually 24-7. And it's great. And the thing that is amazing to me is I loved my job as the librarian. And I was really good at it. But I was asleep and didn't even know it until I started doing this new job. It is like a switch went off in my brain and adrenaline started rushing and boy, my memory got better. And it was like, whoa, where have I been? This is a Zen teacher. I'm supposed to be awake. Ha ha. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) It It was like suddenly I realized for a while I've been doing everything by rote. I knew my job so well. And yes, different kids every year and different deals that you have to deal with them, but really and truly, I'm doing something so completely brand new and my learning curve has been so steep. I mean, if nothing else, I had to become the mistress of Google Docs. For someone who is not very high tech, this was a huge learning curve. But I have awakened again. And I keep going, wow, isn't this interesting? Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, I wonder about this. Curiosity has suddenly bloomed all over again, even though I know how important it is. I wasn't actually doing it, apparently. So we have this healthy, innate desire to work hard, but we might kind of be sleepwalking through our life anyway. We have to watch for that. Courage, though. You know, I am always reminded of the Wizard of Oz at this point because uh, the Cowardly Lion was always my favorite guy. Because, you know, we mostly in practice, we talk about wisdom, there's the scarecrow, and we talk about having heart, and that's the Tin Man. But we don't talk a whole lot about courage. Courage is virtue. Virtue is the part about you're actually going to do it. (laughs) You know what to do. You know how to do it. But are you actually going to do it? So that honest self-reflection part, we grow very accustomed to our own behavior patterns. So that at some point we don't even realize how we rationalize things to ourselves how we misrepresent the truth. You know, maybe that small little exaggeration over here becomes a habit 
And then we begin to exaggerate more and more. I, I have been watching myself over years and years because I'm a born storyteller. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. Uh, <laughs> but I have discovered and, and tweaked it back that there is this tendency to exaggerate numbers, right? Well, there were half a dozen. Oh, well, it turns out there were really a dozen. Well, actually, there were three. <laughs> okay? Just even catching yourself in those small details of your life. To be honest with the self. But these things creep in. We begin to accept our own motivations as pure and harmless, and we don't really question them anymore. And this is because you are the fish in the water, right? You're, there is nothing else but the water. You don't know anything but the water. But sometimes you have to flip yourself out of the water to find out there's something more than just water out there. And that is why uh, it's important to have Dharma friends. Because we may think that we're very right-minded. We may feel very virtuous. Until a friend says, you know that thing you just said to our other friend was not very skillful. (laughs) Really? Oh, that's interesting. And having trust in the three treasures. This has always been very helpful to me. Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. The Buddha is about the teachings. Or the one teaching the end of suffering. There's lots of other teachings that are subsets, but the one teaching, ending suffering. This is our work. You're here for a reason. You didn't just show up. You're here. You have a body and a mind. You can do something with it. You can end suffering. So you have to start with your own, and then you work out. And then we have the Dharma. The Dharma are the teachings, but the Dharma can be as simple as this wonderful glass of water that someone left for me so that I could not have to be dry in my throat. You might think, oh, we always leave a glass of water for the teacher. Sometimes we do and sometimes we don't. And somebody had to think to do it. And somebody had to think about in the very beginning. Maybe one of the things that we should put for our guest teachers is a glass of water. That's a teaching. It's the taking care of somebody teaching. So normally, the teaching is that attachment to anything is delusion. But in the beginning, we have to rely on something besides our own heart. Because our heart has gotten covered over with delusion and defilements since we were very little. You know, that's the nurture part. It wasn't intentional for the most part. Nobody tried to make you who you are. But causes and conditions have brought you to this point. So it's kind of like (laughs) a member of my family is always telling us in advance how her memory does not work very well. But then if you come to a situation where some memory is being called into question, well, that's not the way I remember it. (laughs) Okay. But it's equally true of, like, my dog. 
My dog is what's called a sight hound. My dog can see. He's a scout. This is what his, this kind of dog does. They scout ahead, and then they come back and tell you if there's danger. Okay, he can see a whole lot better than I can. But do I always trust my eyesight if I see something? Sure I do, right? I can see that. We can't see as well as we think. We cannot hear as well as we think. We, we trust our senses to this amazing degree, but quite frankly, they're not all that good by comparison. My sight isn't like my dog's, and my hearing, you know, I'm sure that an eagle can hear a lot better than I can. And yet, we trust these things. So we have to be careful when we first come to practice to be willing to listen to our teachers and our Dharma friends so that we build our senses, that we build our heart. So we have to train the heart. This is what I hope everyone's going to work on in 2017. It's training the heart the heart of compassion, the heart of wisdom, and the heart of virtue. You know, when practice gets difficult, when your life gets difficult, actually, it means everything is going well. Because it means you're really working. You know, I say last year was a very hard year, and at the same time, it was an exhilarating year. And it was a a deepening year. I mean, the conversations I've had with my mother in this last year, it's like getting to know her all over again. Because my mother has always been a very independent person and I don't need anybody's help. And now she does. And that's hard. And so we've had some incredible talks about that. So... Ajahn Chah again says, everyone wants to feel good, but they're less concerned about whether it's right or not. (laughs) When we go against the grain of the defilements and challenge our cravings, of course we're going to feel suffering. And here is where your practice of shila, ethics, morality, virtue, is going to come in handy. Because feeling good is not the same thing as doing the right thing. You all know what the right thing to do is. Even when we're not doing it, we know. Even after we've said that thing to that other person and they deserved it, we know it wasn't really the right thing to say because we don't feel good. They don't feel good either. (laughs) But we know immediately. Wisdom is knowing what to do next. Skill is knowing how to do it. Virtue is doing it. Compassion and forgiveness are understanding that these three aspects are a lifelong practice and you are going to mess up over and over again. And it's okay. Because This is the other thing that makes me crazy about how we teach children. Children are very anxious, again, by the age of eight, about making a mistake, about thinking that they're supposed to know something before they know it. Mistakes are wonderful. Mistakes are interesting. (laughs) Mistakes are the only possible outcome. 
when you don't know. We have to be willing to make mistakes and to see them as wonderful things. You know, good old Edison, thousand different experiments before the light bulb finally worked the way he wanted. But when they asked him, well, how'd you feel about those, you know, thousand times when it didn't work? He said, well, they weren't failures. They said, how many, thousand failures? He said, they weren't failures. They just weren't a way to make a light bulb. Okay. So I'm going to leave you with one last thing from the Dalai Lama to encourage you. There are only two days in the year that nothing can be done. One is called yesterday (laughs) and the other is called tomorrow. Today is the right day to love, believe, do, and mostly live. Blessings on all of you. Thank <laughs> you.